Hello, everyone. A very warm welcome to Nicholas Me. Um, this is truly a mecca for Aston Martin motoring. If you haven't had a chance to look round all the different sheds, I shouldn't call them sheds, they're much smarter barns. than that. Barns. These <laughs> are smarter, smarter than barns. Um, it's truly amazing. So do, do please go and have a look around um, if you haven't already. Uh, before we start, I must thank our event partners, Nicholas Me, Classic and Sports Finance. Um, without them, this event just simply wouldn't have happened. Um, also, thank you for the barbecue. That was absolutely delicious. Um, there's uh, also Andrew Hall, the artwork at the back. Do please have a look at that. Um, and Racing Gold has done things such as this table, uh, which is my new favourite table, because hidden in here is a bottle of wine. Um, so it's great stuff. Before we go anywhere, um, Neil Garrard, Commercial Director. Thank you, Ed. Is that on? Yep, thank you. Um, welcome everyone to Essendon Berry Farm, which uh, for a year now has been our, our new home, having relocated from West London, where we previously had separate showrooms and workshops. Uh, we moved in here in, at the end of May last year, so we've just had our first birthday. Part of the vision of moving out to this, uh, this type of premise uh, in the countryside was to create a destination for Aston Martin enthusiasts. We've been involved in the sale and servicing and maintenance of Aston Martins for 26 years. And we have, as a result, lots of clients and we enjoy spending time with them socially. And uh, to create a, a venue to host events, uh, which becomes uh, a destination for Aston Martin enthusiasts was always something very high up on our list of priorities. So hosting this event tonight really is a pleasure for us um, with Motorsport magazine, uh, my favourite magazine, the one that I take on holidays to read, I don't bother with the others, um, and our good friends Classic and Sports Finance who have uh, been a very big supporter of the business for, uh, for many, many years. Um, and it's good to work uh, with Darren Turner again. Um, Darren and I uh, were involved in the early days of Aston Martin Racing. That was what I was doing uh, prior to being a second-hand car salesman. Um, I was commercial manager at Aston Martin Racing, and Darren was there at the very start of that program, and I'm sure he's going to be touching on that tonight. Um, so uh, with no further ado, I'll hand you back to Ed. Enjoy the evening. Thanks all for coming. Thank you. So um, many of you won't know me, I'm Ed Foster, I'm here to sort of keep things roughly on track. Uh, uh, joining me is Simon Aaron, the features editor of Motorsport magazine. And um, Simon, you'll, if you go to Race Circuit, he'll be there taking photographs. If you go to London Zoo, he'll be there taking photographs. Um, but uh, also an intimate knowledge of motor racing history. <laughs> Uh, obviously, the, the meat of the evening, Darren Turner, um, he doesn't need too much of an introduction from me because you will all know him. Multiple class winner at Le Mans, Aston Martin's longest serving works driver. So either extraordinarily talented or you know the right people or both. I'll go with the latter. <laughs> um, but Darren, thank you for sparing the time because uh, you've just been telling me how many race weekends you're doing. Um, and how busy you've been. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, just quickly, before we get going, we're going to talk for sort of 45 minutes, um, 45 minutes an hour, and then we will go to the floor, and we've got a roving microphone. So any questions you like. Um, it is being recorded, but we can cut things out. So no matter how ridiculous the question, feel free to ask it. Um, there's, and then finally, just before we get started, uh, Motorsport Magazine is uh, starting a new... Um, sort of event uh, series, and they're called Motorsports Game Changers. Uh, they're going to be very, very special, 
and ultimately they are with these sort of very best, most interesting racing drivers and motorsport people we can find. The first two are Nigel Mansell and Gordon Murray, uh, both in September in London. Um, you can buy tickets on motorsportmagazine.com or you see the motorsport guys at the back. It, it truly will be an astonishing evening, um, uh, both of them. And Nigel Mansell, I'm sure, uh, having had a meeting with him the other day and him doing card tricks in the middle of it, um, will be a very interesting evening. Anyway, let's get cracking. Um, Darren, we were briefly talking earlier and you were saying how your memory is patchy. So to kick things off, I think what we should do is right, rewind right back to the start and get some of your kind of very early Aston Martin memories. Uh, okay, so evening everyone, and um, obviously, yeah, thanks very much for, for the invite this evening. Um, I guess, like, before the racing started, before? Yeah, yeah. so okay. was, you know, was, it, was it a James Bond? Or yeah, it must it? have been. Yeah. I mean, it would have been James Bond, and obviously seeing the brand around and, and always understanding what it meant to own an Aston Martin uh, in terms of the prestige and, and just what those cars were. But to be honest, when you're sort of a young racing driver, you're not really worried so much about the car. It's just, is it fast and can it, can it win races? Um, especially in those early days when it's all single-seater base, etc. So you're just all about the single-seater career. And then as time went on uh, and that sort of avenue dried up, then the opportunity to go into touring cars or sports cars, then you start to really appreciate all the marks within motor racing, uh, and especially the ones that have a good pedigree as well. So, you know, I was definitely aware of, of Aston Martin, but they weren't really doing anything at the time in sort of the front line of racing at that point. You know, as I sort of moved out of single seaters in the late 90s into uh, Mercedes at DTM for a couple of years, and then I started with the sports car stuff with Ferrari, customer Ferrari team. So again, you know, Aston was more about historic racing, really. So um, as a sort of a driver trying to carve a professional career, it wasn't so sort of at the front of my mind as a mark that I should be in, because they just didn't have anything to, to go racing with, realistically. Can I just ask what the trigger was for you? Because throughout the 1980s, drivers, they came up the single-seater ladder, and quite often in the case of the British drivers, they'd run out of money when they got to F2, F3000 level, and some of them just disappeared. Guys like James Weaver, Andy Wallace, realised quite early on that rather than fighting and struggling to get uh, a seat in Formula One that was going to be at the back of the grid with money they didn't have, they, they were better off going to the States where you got paid properly to race sports cars. And they, they were amongst the first to forge a really good, solid, professional sports car career away from the single-seater kind of mainstream. When did that moment come for you that you began to realise that that's a good route for me? I did, I did say this was going to be a history lesson. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you have heard of James Weaver and Andy Watt. Yeah, no, I know those guys. They're very good. Um, uh, I have to say, I've never really had a career plan uh, because everything sort of has just happened just by hard work, but in the right place, right time, people wanting to come on the journey with me as well. So, you know, when I got into single-seaters, that was by accident from a load of people at Silverstone that were happy to pay for me to go to the Jim Russell Racing School at Donington. And then that sort of kicked off a single-seater career. And I got to the point where I, I won the McLaren Autosport BRDC Award, and that gave me an opportunity with McLaren, got me my first test in a Formula One car. And it was under Martin Whitmarsh at, at McLaren that he basically pushed me on Mercedes. So I never really said, right, that's what I'm going to do because that's where I think my career should go. It was more, okay, they've given me an opportunity, so I'm, I'm going to go down that route. And that's what happened with the Mercedes in DTM. And then ultimately I got 
sacked from Mercedes and then you're back on the market and I had a year of sort of just trying to tread water and, and find something to race, even if it was for free. And I did, um, you know, I just started earning some money from driving from Mercedes and then I had a year of not earning any money from racing cars to then getting an op opportunity with a privateer Ferrari team. So it wasn't a choice in terms of my choice. It was just what the opportunity was available at that time. So that was it, basically. But you see it even more now. Right now, GT racing is booming and a lot of guys are early in their career are already giving up on the Formula 1 dream and thinking, right, I need to align myself with a manufacturer. That's where I can earn a living. And the only place that the manufacturers are spending money and paying drivers is, is effectively uh, GT racing right now or sports car racing. There's a little bit in, uh, in touring cars, but it's, it, there's more opportunities now. And so you see, annoyingly, for us older boys in racing, you'll see more drivers come across to sports car racing. They're fast, brave, and cheap. So, uh, uh, you know, from that point of view, it's, it's quite annoying. Um, so, uh, you know, you hope that your experience outweighs, you know, the, the benefits of a younger driver. And, and I think that's what's kept me within the sort of the squad up until this period. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you, in the, in, when I did a bit of one-make racing a million years ago, you do a Renault 5 race and the average age of the drivers is about 70 or something. Now, kids come out of karting and they go straight into minis or Renault Clears or whatever it is because they identify immediately that that's, that's yeah. the, thing to, the, the thing to do. It's the whole kind of philosophy of the sport has changed in the last 20 odd yeah, years. I mean, so. 100% you look at British GT and you know, GT4 is full of... 18 year olds. Yeah, yeah. kids under 20 <clears throat> that are trying to carve a career out and trying to put themselves in a position that a manufacturer will give them a GT3 op opportunity, which then will hopefully lead to a GTE op opportunity at Le Mans and then moving across to anything else that gives you them some opportunity to earn, earn money. So, yeah, it's, it's a different marketplace. And I think, you know, right now, I was at Silverstone at the weekend for the British Grand Prix, and an amazing race. And Formula 1 is still the pinnacle of our sport, but the opportunities for drivers to get there are reducing. So I think, you know, the cost of getting there are more expensive. The, opportunities are less so it's more like lottery numbers playing the lottery if you're going to get there or not so I think most people are smart enough to work out if I want a long career in this sport as a driver you've got to get yourself aligned with a manufacturer and you know that's where sports cars got got that leverage right now just before we go on to Aston Martin and how that very first started uh, you mentioned doing the uh, Le Mans with the Ferrari customer team I've got to ask you shared with Colin McRae in your second year, how was, how was he to share with? That, that was one of the most amazing experiences ever. Just because obviously I was like everyone, he's like, he's a rally god. And uh, I didn't know him at all before he came and joined the, the squad. Only what everyone else sees in the, the media, on TV, and his interviews and stuff like that. Um, so you know you've got someone really special coming to join the team. And uh, it was one of those sort of, why are they putting him with, in our car? You know, surely he's going to be in a different car, and he's in, but he, he, he had that relationship with ProDrive because of all the Subaru stuff, etc. So, you know, he, he came along and he was just so down to earth, such a nice guy to hang out with. No airs or graces, no, like, I'm, the, I'm the, the big shot here, so, you know, make sure everything's about me. He was just the same as any other driver. Just, there was a, there was a bit on, like, I think on the test day where we were trying out seats. Well, I don't think he's ever had to do a seat mould, which is then compromised because there's two other drivers in the car. So he's trying to work out how he can fit in the car 
the best way for him, but also works for us. And he's out the back of the garage with a hacksaw like we all are, carving up his seat, trying to like, make little modifications to get comfortable. It's not like he's just told a mechanic to go out there and fix my seat. He's just hands-on getting involved. And at that point, I was like, you know, this guy's, he's there for all the right reasons, just to enjoy the, the racing aspect. So that was, you know, the build-up. Um, and one of the things that stood out from that weekend was we were staying in a chateau near the circuit. So nowadays we stay at the circuit for the whole week. That's the normal thing now uh, in little motorhomes. But that sort of period, it was all about hotels nearby or chateaus and, and bits and bobs. So we're all staying at the, the chateau. And I can remember reading, you know, looking through books and you see from periods of history where drivers are all hanging out together and they're having a laugh away from the circuit. They're enjoying each other's company. Well, that doesn't often happen nowadays. And I, this was a bit of a pinch me moment because the whole squad and an, another team of drivers was at the same uh, place. And this, it, it sounds glamorous, the chateau, but it was quite a rundown thing and you had to share different bathrooms and you know, it's a rickety old place, but it was still nice. They had a, a, a pool and I remember sitting on the, the Tuesday, which is generally a day off from the Le Mans week, sitting there and everyone's by the pool, everyone's having fun, everyone's, and I was just like, this, this reminds me of what those photos were of back in the day when the 60s and 70s were racing, where there was a bit of a, a social scene with the, in the racing. So it was really nice to, to have that experience in the build-up. And then in the race, he was, you know, the testing, the qualifying, the race, he was just fantastic. You know, he, the bit that was really surprising was, I, you know, I didn't ask him, but someone was asked him a question. He said uh, about, you know, did he find it difficult? And he just said it was more physical than he ever expected it to be. And that surprised me, because I was thinking, bouncing around the woods in a rally car must be fairly physical. Um, and he, and he, was, he said that actually doing two hours around Le Mans in a GT1 car was, was uh, much harder than he expected, harder than, than being in a rally car. But I think it's just because of you know, the G-force compared to a rally car and et cetera. So, but it was, yeah, it was a real pr privilege to, to use that, have that race with, with Colin and uh, just to enjoy that moment. Sorry, Simon. What was your first experience of Le Mans like? Because I think with, you hear from some young drivers that they don't fully appreciate what it's all about, and it's only when they actually get there it hits them. Were you very aware of what it was when you went there for the first time? So I, I was part of the Mercedes team in 99, so as the reserve driver. So I, my first visit to Le Mans uh, and the first sort of experience of Le Mans was right in the deep end with everything that happened with Mercedes that year in 99. So I did just, some... Just to, to remind everyone, it was, they had cars that literally flipped going down the Morsan Strait and landed 50 metres from the circuit. Yeah, it wasn't was, a great year for them. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and, 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 and I don't think they've been back. So yeah. it was I one of the... enough, Astons have never done that. So. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just the Morsan Strait either. Indianapolis, on the road to Indianapolis, it everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. It was, Mark uh, Webber did it on two consecutive laps. <laughs> But it was one of those, like, okay, this is nice to be the reserve driver. So I've done all the testing in the car, so I know the car, but I come to this event with no pressure. I could just watch, see how it works, go behind the scenes, understand the whole, how the whole race works. And I'd still recommend that to any driver before they just go to Le Mans for the first time, go the year before and just shadow a team, shadow a driver, just to experience it all. So when you come to do it for your first time as an actual driver and be part of that event, you sort of know the routine, because it's, it's it's a hard week, you know, it's not just the, the hard race, it's a hard week with all the build-up and uh, all the sort of uh, elements of the race week that you have to be involved with. So being there that week, I was like, oh, okay, this is quite nice, I get to do uh, the hospitality with Mercedes and, you know, just 
have a nice time. I went out on the circuit. I went places that I shouldn't have gone because I had the time to go and do it. Um, and at no point did I think I was going to be in the car. So I think Mark flew on Thursday evening. And so that was the first time the car took off. And obviously the car was heavily damaged in that, in that accident. And then, um, and, the, and Mark was pretty beaten up from the first flight. Um, and so the team were like, okay, you need to get yourself prepped mentally because you're going to be going out on warm-up Saturday morning, the next time the cars will run. So at that point, the whole fun part of being at Le Mans <laughs> disappeared. And I, I have to say, I was, I was really scared because I'd done no laps at Le Mans because I didn't do the test day. Uh, there wasn't simulators back then, so the only thing you could do was use grainy videos of what was going on. And um, you know, the, the idea of going out Saturday morning for 30 minutes and then going to be in the race, was, it was too daunting, really. But they said, look, Mark's in a pretty bad way Thursday night. I'm not sure he's going to be ready for Saturday morning. Get yourself ready. So all of Friday, I was like looking as much data as I possibly could, trying to absorb, asking all the other drivers, what do I do at this corner? What do I do at this corner? Uh, and then, thankfully, Friday night, Mark's been in, uh, had some treatment. I think he went off to the swimming pool to sort of try and loosen it all off. And you know, Friday night, they confirmed that Mark's good to go and he's going to do the race. So I completely relaxed at that point. And it's like, okay, that's nice. I can just enjoy this race. It was uh, Saturday morning warm-up on the outlap. Mark flew for the second time. So that would have been me on my first ever lap of Le Mans if Mark hadn't felt okay on Friday night. So, uh, yeah, and, and that probably would have been the last time I'd ever gone to Le Mans because I would have been, no, that's not for me, this 24-hour racing. So, uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those weekends. There was a huge amount of pressure uh, from within the team with what was going on. It wasn't a very nice atmosphere from, you know, from the beginning, really, because of, you know, the pressure of doing a good result in terms of what I could see, um, looking in on the team. And then, obviously, when that happened, it was, it was a game-changer as well. So, I, I, to be fair, I was surprised that they took the start having two cars fly before the event. It, you know, they took the start, but they did. And then, unfortunately, uh, Peter had his big accident. Um, and, you know, that was, that was the end of that, really. So, um, but yeah, that was my first experience along. So, the second time was 2003, going back with the, uh, the ProDrive 550 Ferraris. And uh, it was much more enjoyable. <laughs> did you have any... I know quite a few drivers who come off the single-seater ladder and they've got kind of sniffy impressions of Le Mans. They, I mean, back, I'm talking back in the sort of 90s. The, the single-seater career had stalled and they find a sports car driver and they think Le Mans for old men and then they go there and they realise, yeah, wow. I mean, did you have any preconceptions before you went? Uh, no, I guess the only thing I thought was I didn't realise it was such a sprint and it's become even more yeah. of a sprint as years have gone. Even in the, so I, my first experience was 2003, so what's that, 17 years I've done it now. So um, <clears throat> even in that period, the pace has become hotter every year, you know, the, the level of competition. Not that it wasn't already competitive, but the cars are now even, you know, even more reliable than they were 15 years ago. Um, the competition's gone up, there's more cars in each class, um, and the margin for error is, has been reduced. So um, I think back then I was more aware of what the race was and the enormity of it all, but wasn't really thinking it was the most competitive place to be in the world. It was more about the car rather than what the drivers were doing. And now it's equally, you know, the car's got to be reliable, but the drivers have got to push every lap. Otherwise, it just won't be a result. Do you feel it's a shame in some ways that the prototypes are there because the battle in the GT class over the years, 
with Aston, Ferrari, Porsche, Corvette, several others. I mean, the, the competition in the GT class has, has traditionally, in the last 10, 15 years, been incredibly intense. Yes, I certainly think right now, you, you look at the GTE with, I think we had 17 pro cars this year with Aston Martin, Ferrari, Corvette, BMW, Ford and Porsche, so all great manufacturers. And the AM class is, is equally as competitive um, with some super fast drivers. You know, there is pro drivers in that class, so, you know, again, those guys are, are putting in some great performances. Um, so, yeah, you have to say GT racing at Le Mans is the most competitive, but it's always going to be about the fastest cars. Yeah? And, and unless they make GT the fastest cars, it's all, it's, we put on the show and it's probably more competitive, but it's about the overall winner. Which is, it's annoying when you're, it's annoying when the Rolexes only get given out to the, <laughs> the overall winner. That is really annoying. Um, uh, so that, yeah, that's, that's probably the most disappointing thing. Um, and especially in the last couple of years, because it, it hasn't been the most competitive in LMP1 in terms of overall a number of cars. Um, and so, you know, I think last year, was it last year? The, the um, well, it was the Porsche, sorry, when Porsche was last in it. It was in the box for a couple of hours and it still overcome the, the LMP2 car that was leading at the time. And it's sort of, yeah, I don't know what you're fighting because it's not, it's not a wheel-to-wheel -wheel battle like it is in GT racing. But sometimes the LMP2s put on a good show as well. Um, and so, it, you know, it will ebb and flow. You know, there's going to be times when the, the sort of the top class will put on the best show. And at the moment, it's, a, it's all about the GT cars. So what do you get for winning the GT class, a Timex or a Swatch or something? Just a trophy. So it's like, it's like if you do Daytona 24-hour, each class gets a Rolex, yeah. And then at Le Mans, it's like, especially, I'm not bitter about it, but... No, <laughs> clearly. And I don't want to harp on about it, but in 2017, you know, the, we won, and it was a great fight all the way through. In Lots of GT cars were leading at different times. The race went to the last sort of four or five minutes, um, and it was an epic battle in that race and we got that was just a trophy but saying it's just a trophy is really bad because it's it's i have to say the podium at le mans is like no other podium i've ever experienced it's, it's a a real magical place to stand let alone to win and be on the top step just to go out on that podium is incredible place and the first time uh, to be on the top step. Uh, it was one of those things where I felt a little bit sad that I couldn't share it with everyone else in the team because it was such a, a big event for us, a big win uh, in 2007. It was like nearly overwhelming. And the only time I've had that emotion, similar emotion, was when I, completely different, when I did the London Marathon, coming across the line in the London Marathon. It was a similar sort of, oh, that was a big deal. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's such a magical place. And, my, my parents don't come to many races, but I do remember one year, it wasn't a, a year when we had a win, but it was before that on a podium. I have no idea to this day how my dad got there, but as you turn around and walk off the podium, there's a glass, there's a room above the thing, and there's my dad tapping on the window. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, what, what are you doing up there? I don't, I don't know how he got himself in there, but it was like a really, really strange thing to see, but yeah, lovely to see something, but it's, it's yeah, amazing place. You, you must have thought, to, Le Mans was sort of relatively easy. In your first six visits, you finished on the podium five times. It was, I mean, it's a remarkable run of, of, of success. I've got some tro uh, missing trophies then, because I, 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 in <laughs> fact, the, fir the first podium there, 
there was no trophy other than for no, the. That's why you're missing them. Yeah, <laughs> other for the winner of the class, they were the only ones that got a trophy. So second. But you're, not, you're not bitter about any of. Not the Rolex, <laughs> not the fact that there's a missing trophy, um, but it was. Um, yeah, there was less cars in GT1 at that time, or less competitive cars. Yeah. So if you made the end of the race, there was a good chance you could be on the podium. Where now, <clears throat> that's, it's so different. It's like if you, if you go down a couple of minutes, it's unlikely you're gonna be on the podium. Um, and especially in the last two years, the safety cars have, have really sort of um, cut the GT race in half. So, it, you know, uh, two years ago, the, the Porsche just got a nice buffer because they just happened to be in the right place, right time when the safety car came out. So, yeah, back then it was probably easier if you kept out of trouble and just got the car to the end, you'd, you'd be in a good position, certainly a top five in the class. And good, because the, the first Aston that you raced in on more, the DBR1, there's, you know, it's, there's, you're with any manufacturer, there are a few cars kind of throughout its period that just kind of have that little bit more shock and awe about it. What was it like to drive? Because it, Everyone always says good things about it, but I don't. It's still my favourite car, full stop. And, and yeah, I've driven a lot of cars. Uh, in a, yeah, a lot of cars in lots of different periods. And I'm lucky now to go and do things like Goodwood and I get to drive older cars and appreciate all those and modern cars, Grand Prix cars. It, you know, I've been really lucky with the, the amount of cars I've enjoyed over the years, but the DBR9 is always going to be my absolute favourite. The 550 Ferrari was built by the same company, obviously ProDrive. Um, and it was, a, it was a fun car to drive, but they took all that learning from that car over a couple of years of racing, and then they had time with the, DB, the DB9 to make it into the race car. It wasn't a rush project. Um, we were up and running. I think the design probably started at the beginning of 2004. By October, we had a car, and we were out running at Donington. That was the first day's testing with the car, and straight out of, the, out of the box, it felt superior. It felt like the next level of what GT1 racing was gonna be about. And the reason I, I love driving those cars so much is it had a sequential gearbox, you had to heel and toe, so you still had the involvement. It had a lot of horsepower, not so many electronics in the car, um, and good aero. Plus the tires were, were fairly consistent back there as well. So, you know, there was a lot of things about that period that meant those cars were really special. Um, and, you know, being part of that program from day one, and also being part of sort of, not that they ever gave me a, anything to design, because it was like Etch-a-Sketch or something <laughs> like that, but it was more of a case of, you know, you were involved with the ergonomics, what's the word? Ergonomics. Ergonomics of the car. Um, <clears throat> from the design and from the early uh, build-up in the factory before we went to the racetrack. So that was really nice to be involved with that, to get everything as simple and uh, as easy to operate as, as possible. So, um, and it's completely different. You know, the, we're only talking, what, how many years are we talking? Maybe 14 years from, from that point of view, 15 years. And the environment in a GT, current GTE car is completely different to what a GT1 was like. So, uh, but yeah, that car will always be magic to me. And occasionally I've had the chance to get back in one uh, and it just feels like home. Having spent so many, kilometers behind the wheel, it just feels like I've gone home in that car. So uh, I love it. Do you still enjoy the racing as much, despite the reduced physical involvement? Uh, I think it's more mentally taxing now than it was before. Is there more buttons? More buttons, more procedures involved, more pressure. There's definitely more pressure. You're, as a driver, you're analyzed more in your performance. The more data that's involved, the more the teams can look at it and sort of go, 
oh yeah, well you've lost a tenth there. What what are you doing at that point? Excuses yeah, you've got. yeah. <laughs> we were talking earlier on about you know when I started racing, there was no data, so you could get away with anything. You could make anything up, and no one, you know, you, like, everyone had to trust what you said. And now that's definitely not the case. It's, it's the opposite. And quite often they point things out to you, and it's like, oh yeah, that does does make sense. So it's it's a completely different driving experience to what it was before. Um, and obviously it's paddle shift and you know greater car control with ABS and well, not in GTE but traction control and all these elements but it means you have to focus more on them to optimise them so it's just a different craft than it was before but we're definitely under more pressure to perform at every point so when you, t you know, when you're watching racing on TV and things you hear the commentators talking about are oh, they going through their start positions you mentioned procedures in the car just tell us a little bit about what those are because I you know, my procedure if I go out in a go-kart is to try not to fall off the track. It's, but it's quite, it's quite complicated. Try <laughs> or try and get in it. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah, do you even fit in a go-kart? <laughs> Ditto, touche, yeah. Simon, touche. <laughs> it's, uh, we have like a, a big what-if document that is, you know, something we as drivers are meant to memorise every element of that document. How does that go with you? Not so good. <laughs> so, uh, and we, we get sat down every now and again to go through the steering wheel and our switch panel... Uh, and our dash, so we get sort of tested fairly regular on, you know, here's a picture of your steering wheel with no um, indication of what each of the buttons are, and you've got to write down what they are. Because when you sat in the car, you, you can glance and go, oh, I need that, I need that, so you can have a little look at the buttons, and it's just, you know roughly where it is, but you need to, so to make sure that we're fully in tune with everything, and to so that it's subconscious, we get like this test, basically, and then the switch panel's got 21 buttons on that. There must be, I don't know, 15 on the steering wheel and stuff like that, and then there's lots of things on the dashboard and that. So they're basically making sure that, given any circumstance on, in the race, with any issue with the car, we know what to do, because if the radio fails, then you might, because the thing is, it's always get the car back. Whatever happens in the race, get the car back. So they want you to be, completely self-sufficient to understand what's needed to get the car back in case the radio fails. So it's understanding all those procedures to, to get through. In the race itself, it's, it's fairly easy. It's like you've got a fuel alarm and you'll have a point on the circuit which is if the fuel alarm comes on before that point, you box. If it's after that point, you've got one lap. And that's, and, and that's on a normal racing circuit. Le Mans is a bit different because the regulations mean you can't do more than 14 laps in our, in our class. So it's, there's less to even think about at that point. But you've still got to be self-sufficient in case the radio goes down. That's the, the whole key of it, really. So, um, And, yeah, other than that, the procedures are, are fairly sort of... You make adjustments to what the car, TC, brake bias, those sort of elements that you can change... Um, there's little things, little trick things within the, the gearbox selection. So, like as tyre wear is increased as the stink goes on, you'll have more issue with rear locking. Um, so you can use the brake bias maybe to go forward, but there's there's always a point where it's too far forward. So you can do things with the engine that will help with the rear locking. As so there's all these things that parameters that you can adjust to try and make sure you optimise the car at every stage of the one hour stint that you're probably going to be in the car. Have you had any particularly difficult car rescues at Le Mans or anywhere else? Uh, where, where you've been stranded out in the countryside somewhere with a, a spanner and... Uh, I've, I've had punch... The, the worst one was Nürburgring 24-hour. I think we were on Yokohamas that year and uh, I had a blowout. 
and obviously it's, it's a narrow track, there's not much area to work on, so all the cars, are, if you're doing 24 hour racing, you have toolkits in the car, so there was no way, because I was still on, I was probably 16 kilometers from the pits at this point, there's no way I'm gonna get all the way back up the hill with this blowout, so I pulled over to the edge of the track. I learned about tire construction in the 45 minutes that I stood by the edge, edge of the track with my little junior hacksaw and some cable tie snippers. So I was trying to cut off this tire so I could remove it and then get going again. Um, and so I was cutting through the rubber with my hacksaw and then I got the bead that, like there's a metal yeah, yeah, bead, isn't it? Yeah. Didn't know about that. So <laughs> after 40 minutes of cutting through the rubber, I got to the bead. And at this point there's a Marshall car behind because Nürburgring 24, it's, it's proper cowboy type racing. They're not gonna, um, they're not worried. They just put an incident car behind you and a bloke will stand with a yellow flag and let you crack on and try and do your job. But after 45 minutes of sweating by the edge of the track and, and he eventually came over and goes, you're not gonna get through there. We were like, my hacksaw blade's gone blunt. <laughs> the little snippers I've got is now broken. And he's like, look, we're, we'll pull you a kilometer and there's a, there's a small gap and then the team can come and give you a new tire. Um, so they, I had a pit stop out on the circuit. So I've had that and at Le, uh, he's a race engineer for Ford now, but he was our racing engineer, a guy called Wilkes. Um, and, and he's a like, great race engineer. But we were having shift issues with the, uh, the, the Ferrari 550. And it had, basically to flat shift, you had to cut the ignition. So back then it wasn't done on a load cell in the top of the gear lever, it was done on a little optical light thing. So as the lever moved, it broke the beam and that gave the cut so you could do a flat shift. So you didn't have to come off the throttle when you went up the gears. Anyway, this thing started playing up, which created a misfire. So I'm on the Molsan and they can see a little bit in this quite crude telemetry they've got and I'm describing what the problem is and okay the misfire is better if I'm holding the lever or not or something like that so then he's like okay so what I need you to do is pull the reverse gear cable off the back of the gear shift and then you can move the LED and do the it's a two man two hand job and you need an allen key like that so and I'm, I'm like and then it was at night and I was like well, there's no way in the world. I kept looking at it, thinking, how can I, I can't, I can't do it. Anyway, we, we sort of uh, soldiered on until the pit stop, but it was more the fact that he, he's, he'd got it in his head that I'd be able to do it, like hold the steering wheel in my knee and, and try and do that, and obviously reach across and get the little uh, toolkit that's on, on the roll cage. But yeah, that was probably the worst scenario. So, um, But yeah, you've, you, if the car gets damaged at any 24-hour race, don't give up. You know, fight until the bitter end to try and get it so you can drive it back. And if you see, you know, some of the accidents, especially like the Audis, I can remember the prototype Audis, you know, they have a huge shunt. There's hardly, there's like a wheel, one wheel pointing one direction, another wheel missing, and one wheel with drive, and they still get the thing back. And it's like, you know, an hour later, the Audi guys have got the car out. And, you know, that whole sort of attitude to 24 hour racing is, is part of the joy of don't give out. Although nowadays, if you've, if you've lost five minutes on track, you're not going to get a result. But it's even now, one of the last parts of our briefings is we want to get both cars to the, the finish. So do whatever it is to get the cars to the finish. Now, we can't sort of have an hour with you and not talk about LMP1 because Aston did go LMP1 racing, um, which is a very fond part of my memories, having 
cleaned your wheels for 20 or 24 hours, which you didn't even know. So such is your bond with the team. Yeah. Um, and uh, so tell me about stepping up to that. I mean, it was a Lola Aston to start with for 2009 and 2010, but a very different machine, and you were fighting at the front. You were overtaking cars rather than watching mirrors. Yeah, that, that car was magic to drive. It, it was a bit of an eye-opener as well, and I had so many nice events with that car, and Le Mans included. Um, but I can remember Spa for one of the um, one of the races we had. There was a six-hour race there, and we got a puncture on the on the parade lap, installation lap. So I had to box before the race even started. So it was right at the back uh, as it went green, and I can just remember the first sort of five laps cutting through the the GT cars and the LMP cars and, and getting back onto sort of where the LMP1 cars. And I remember thinking. It's like a game. This is just like a game. The way that it's so much faster than everything else and then it cuts through and it's, it's effortless to drive sort of thing. So that particular car, 2009, 2010, it was a great experience to be in LMP1. Obviously, with a, a V12 petrol, you needed to be in a diesel at that point. But even so, I think at, at Le Mans, our best lap was two or three seconds off, off what the, the diesels were doing at the time. So it was, considering it's such a small program, uh, and done on real, really small budget, it was, you know, again, David and Goliath type experience in terms of we, we weren't ever going to be on the, the level of the diesels, but at least we put a good shot. And the nice thing was the car sounded epic. And even now, you know, I can, if it's on a demonstration or sometimes at Le Mans recently, they've had them out in the Aston um, support race and, uh, you know, you can hear it miles away and, you know, oh, okay, that's the the LMP1 car, it's such a beautiful sound. And I think, well, I can remember, I don't know if it's true or not, but I can remember someone saying in the design office that, okay, we're not gonna win on outright pace, but it's gotta look good and it's gotta sound good. And part of the exhaust was done in such a way just to make sure that that was maximized as well. So, uh, Two or three seconds in that. <laughs> yeah, we probably got compromised the overall performance for a, for a great sound, but it was, yeah, it was a, a great car, but it's still quite basic inside. You know, when you jump back in it now and, Again, I've had the chance to drive it recently, but it's, it's how much all these cars move on and how quickly they move on and everything else. And obviously that was a highlight, driving LMP1, that particular LMP1, and then we came back in, in 2011 and that was a bit of a low light in terms of um, Aston Martin Racing's history in, in, you know, since 2005. But yeah, it was brave and uh, lack of budget, lack of time, and, and that was the result. But it was one of those things that we sort of shelved and moved on pretty quickly. Amongst all the historic stuff you've driven, have you had a chance to drive the 1959 winning car? Not the winning car, no. But I did drive the, the, a, a DBR1 at Goodwood at the Festival of Speed, once up the hill. And I've driven it recently at Le Mans, just from the Dunlop curves through Tet Rouge and, and back again for some filming. So I've had a, a bit of experience with that car. And there's a number of cars from that period that I've had the chance to get behind the wheel. The DBR1, considering it's completely open, it's still so hot inside the car. Because um, nowadays they really concentrate on the, uh, the heat transfer between the engine bay and the, and the cockpit. You know, there's so many different materials used to make sure that's minimised. And, well and, and all these things yeah. that make a big difference. But obviously then it, it was like the hot engine can heat up the bulkhead and that was it. And, you know, the day we did the filming at Le Mans, it was, I don't know, probably late 20s. And um, I was surprised my feet were hot on the pedals. So it gave you some idea what they were going through back in the day. And the bit that still I still cannot get my head around is they did those races with two drivers. You know, I, d I don't know how they did it back in the day with just two drivers. You know, it's hard to drive that car, let alone drive it on the limit, and then having to do 12, minimum 12 hours in the race 
um, with a teammate. So uh, yeah, different era altogether, and um, yeah, very. It, it was good. I like driving the old cars because it gives me a good understanding of of what racing was back in those days and the level of, of driver talent as well. Are you happier though that you grew up or you started racing when you did? Or do you think you'd have preferred that old tough to hell with safety era? I, I think I'm more old school. Um, I, I honestly think right now motor racing is becoming more sanitized. Um, and there's a lot of people who say that's great, the safer it is, the better it is and everything else. But I also think part of the appeal is the risk and challenging yourself with that risk. Um, and it's a conversation that comes up a lot. There's, there's a balance, and I think we've gone too, too far at this moment. The car safety, keep improving that and everything else, but if they keep removing the challenge of the circuit and the spectacle, then, <clears throat> then it, it just becomes a, a fairly sort of mundane sport, really. And it's always your choice to go and race. And even if I wasn't a professional, I'd still be racing. I'd still find the money somewhere to go and pay for me to go racing because it's the thing that I love and I enjoy the competition. I enjoy finding my limit. I enjoy understanding the car and, and, and obviously trying to make the most of it. So, yeah, one of the things from the British Grand Prix this weekend, and it was a huge news, news where they brought the gravel trap closer to Luffield on the exit. And it's like, well... It's great that they've done that. I really like that they've done that, but it's a shame that it went away in the first place and they just put concrete there and, and everything else because you've got to have <clears throat> an area to work in and then when you go over it, it's got to be a negative. And I think with all these uh, tarmac runoffs everywhere, it, it's, there's no penalty for mistakes now um, other than if you get a track limit, which is so boring. You know, I'd rather have a big fight on the grass hopefully not hit the barrier, get the thing under control, lose five seconds myself, and then get back on the track, rather than, oh, this is beginning to get a bit of a moment, I'll just open the steering wheel, use a bit of tarmac, and then I might get away with a penalty, or I might not get a penalty sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I just, yeah, I think I probably would have enjoyed racing back in the day. But yeah. I enjoy, you know, the thing is, racing's racing, but the, the thing I really like is, getting the experience of like the Goodwood Revival and Silverstone Classic um, next weekend as well because you know the cars dance that's the thing about old cars it's they're like <clears throat> they float they move around on the straight they don't want to break they don't want to turn they <clears throat> you know you're, you're in this constant dance with a floating car and it's really nice to get one of those old cars on that sort of drift and just start to move it around where a modern car it's is pretty much in a groove and any your angle is is negative on lap time so you're just trying to keep it within the restraints of of its limits really because last year at the revival you raced the db2 yeah. and ford water trophy which you won and then uh just got driver of the meeting for which you did get a watch for i did yeah you did get a watch yeah, finally great <laughs> <laughs> um but is it i mean those cars you turn up just on the weekend and you're showing the car before qualifying and you, you get into it and race it on quite a lot of the occasions because you've got your own cars that you race but it's is that not quite a difficult thing and you've got an owner kind of there watching you and it's, it's a very different thing to being a, a professional driver and it's, at Le Mans. It's my weekend off and that, that I, it's just literally I'm there because I want to enjoy it my wife loves it because of all the dressing up and the ball and everything else so it you know considering how many weekends I'm away anyway uh, it's nice to get like a free pass they're always a 
a Brucey bonus, aren't they? So, you know, <laughs> the fact that she can come and make a nice weekend of it and, and you know, a lot of other drivers, wives and partners are down there as well. So, you know, it's, it's a great atmosphere. And yeah, for, for sure you turn up at some stage and it's the first time you'll see the car will be qualifying. Um, and the owners, I guess if, well, the re I think the reason you get invited back is because you respect the owner's cars. And I, in all the time I've raced there, I've only put a few scratches on a couple of cars, no big damage or anything like that. So you, that should, you should start building up a bit of a reputation with other owners. Oh, okay, you can put him in the car because he's, he's not gonna like, put it in the wall, hopefully. Uh, and you know that I don't want to get to the point where I'm going to Goodwood and it's all about performance because then it's a work weekend. Um, and what I like is every time I get in an owner's car, they're there for the same reason. If suddenly I had an owner saying, you've got to win this race, uh, I'd be probably like, okay, you need to find someone else to do it because that's not what that weekend's about for me. It's about enjoying the, the event, enjoying the cars and enjoying the owners as well. And like last year, it's a Hamill, I think, which is the first time I had an experience yeah. in a Can-Am car. So I got asked by Goodwood if I would drive it and I was like, yeah, okay. Well, it was more, I think the way that we would, uh, we, the phone call was like, we would really appreciate if you would drive this car, which is basically, please drive it, otherwise, you know, we might not invite you next year. In a really friendly way. So, um, so I was like, okay, yeah, I'll drive this Hamel. And then someone I know found out that I was driving it and he's like, are you sure you want to drive that car? And I was like, well, is, what's the wrong with it? And he's like, they're animals. Those whole Can-Am car, they're animals. Um, and that one in particular is not really known. Um, and he'd heard of a few drivers saying it's, it's a difficult car to drive. When I checked into the hotel on Thursday night, I think I saw Marcus Pye at the reception, and he goes, are you sure you want to drive that out? <laughs> and I was like, oh, so I, was, I was really nervous. And then the next day, was, it was qualifying, um, straight into qualifying, and, and so I went out, and as soon as I, obviously cold tyres, aren't they? You go out of the collecting area, you've got to turn sharp right to join the circuit and the thing just lit up. You know, a little bit of throttle, cold tyres, and boom, the V8 erupted behind me. And I was like, oh my God. Like this. <laughs> uh, and I thought, this is gonna be the worst, I think, 15 minutes qualifying of my life. And, um, <clears throat> but then, a bit of temperature in the tyres, and I was getting more and more confident. But then, lap three, <clears throat> someone put a load of oil down. So that was pretty much the end of, of qualifying. But somehow, ended up third on the, on the grid. And I was like, quite happy with that. You know, first time out in this car, and it's an animal, and uh, I've ended up third on the grid. And then I had a great race with Rob Huff. Um, yeah, pretty poor start, but I was just glad not to stall it. Poor start, and then got, got a bit of a rhythm going, and then had a good, good scrap with Rob and, and came in second. So I was like, really happy with that. But the, the bit I really enjoyed that weekend was the DB2, um, because uh, one of the guys that bought one of the DB4 continuations, he, I met him and he said, my friend's gonna, enter a DB2 at Goodwood, would you, would you be prepared to drive it? Yeah, great, perfect. Um, so this DB2's had a long history of, of racing. And so I, I was texting, got the phone number, texting the owner, and he goes, oh, we're gonna do a little test day down at Goodwood for you, um, and my guy Tony will be there to run the car. Okay, great, so I arranged to go down to Goodwood, turn up, and I'm looking for a race transporter of you know, a historic <laughs> racing team, looking around, no, nothing. And then in the corner I see this old Land Rover with uh, a DB2 on the back of a trailer, but it's not like a car trailer, it's one of those farm I4 ones <laughs> that you put 
hay bales and stuff in it. And I was like, that can't be it. So I wandered over, and this chirpy chappy, Tony, who'd been running the cars for years and years and years, he, he, he was buzzing about his car. And it was really nice to spend the day with him because he had so much love and affection for his, for his DB2. Or not his DB2, but the DB2 that he was running. So we had a, we had a good day just testing. Um, but we weren't too sure what the performance would be like against the rest of the grid. So then it, then it came to the revival and uh, left the, the collecting area. Who knew race cars had handbrakes? I didn't. <laughs> it was like, that was a whole new thing to me. So uh, I did the whole qualifying with a handbrake on. Uh, and I, kept, I was going around thinking, there's the smell, <laughs> but... <laughs> I what think, were you saying about never denting or scraping cars? Yeah, but that's, not, that, that's neither. You know, that's just burning them. So there's the smell. But I thought, oh, maybe Tony's put new brake pads in. And that's, you know, he just forgot to help me bed them in. So I, we came in. And, and somehow, again, on, on the front row for the, for the race, um, and then Tony's face dropped when he's looking at the drums and how hot everything is and get put, sort of pokes his head in the car and the handbrake's still on. And he goes, did you, have you just put that back on? I'm like, no, no, I didn't know, I didn't know you had a handbrake, let alone. Um, so he had to go and find a car, original DB2 owner, that evening, so on the, on the Saturday, had to go and find a guy, I think 50 miles away, that had a DB2, standard road car DB2, take the drums and the pads, or the... Do you call them pads on drums? Shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. Um, off that. So we had someone else's drums and shoes on for race day. Um, so we're lying on the, on the front of the grid and there's um, uh, Sam Tordoff in the 356 next to us, so he's on pole. I'm sitting there and thinking, well, as long as I don't stall, I can just get in a little rhythm and, you know, it'd be a nice little race. He stalls. So off I pot. I didn't make the... Didn't have the best start, so we dropped a few places. And then... Um, I finally got back into the lead. But the screens at Goodwood are great because you can see the racing, especially in a, you know, one of these really old cars because they're quite slow. So you've got more time just to have a little look at what the, <laughs> the race did. So I knew Sam in the 356 must have been doing well because every time I saw the two screens, I could see the 356. And then I'm trying to see at the timing screen at the bottom what the gap was. <laughs> and then suddenly I'm picking him up in the, mi uh, in the mirror as well. And I'm like, oh, Please, can I just get to the end of this race? And I, he closed within five seconds. So, so he had a, a fantastic race, but I, you know, just sort of went round and round and round. But it was really nice to get a win, especially for Tony and the, and the car owner, because you know, it was it was for them. It was a big thing that their car was at, at Goodwood, and you know, I, I just got to enjoy enjoy that them and the car that weekend. So it was, it was really nice. You've had a fantastic, varied career in terms both modern and ancient, ancient and modern machinery. Are there any circuits yet that you'd love to race at but you've never visited? Uh, so I think now it's, it's, there's Mossport. I'd like to go there. Um, I missed out on the opportunity in, in, when I did British Touring Cars because there was a clash with uh, American Mon Series race. So I was a bit gutted about that. And Macau. Although I've been to Macau many times just to watch friends race it and, and just to have a, a good time, I've not actually done it other than in a mini moat taxi so I think they're the two circuits left I did have Bathurst on my list but I, I was lucky enough to go out there a couple of years ago and, and get to enjoy that race as well so now it's, it's just those two two circuits really so one car one circuit what do you choose it would be the DBR9 and it'd be it'd be I think Neuschleife just because I don't think anyone's had a GT1 on, on the Neuschleife, so I think it would be Neuschleife. And, you know, this year we had Le Mans. So we had Le Mans one weekend and the following weekend, Nürburgring 24-hour. 
And for a 24-hour race, you, they can't be any more different. Um, <clears throat> Le Mans is huge pressure. Um, and yeah, big crowd, everything's analysed. Um, I wouldn't say it's the most enjoyable event. It's definitely the most special event in, in terms of what it means to the teams and the drivers and, and everyone involved. Um, but the enjoyment's taken out probably because of the pressure involved in, in performance sort of thing. Um, then the next week you go to Nürburgring 24 hour and it's the complete opposite. It's pure enjoyment. Um, because every lap is completely random. You don't know what's around the corner. It will be crazy. There'll be stuff, stuff that happens and you're like, I cannot believe that's just happened and they're still letting us race. Uh, the weather so makes a big difference. Someone on the side of the track on a saw through their tyre. Yeah, yeah, that's the least of your things to, to worry about. Um, but like, I think the first time I did Nürburgring 24 hours, a Mini had a big shunt, it's on fire, but as we came part, it's at night, as you came down the foxhole thing area, the Mini's at the bottom on fire. You know it's okay because the driver's stood there looking you know, annoyed. Um, the next time, because it's a nine minute lap, next time you come round, the fire's out, but the Mini's just a sort of a, a wreck. But then the track's completely covered in, in water where they've doused the thing. So that's now a big problem because you're going on slicks, having a big moment. And then you go around the next lap, nothing. It's all gone. Mini's gone, water's gone. Because it's such a big lap and it takes so long, you know, they can have aircraft craft size accidents and two laps it's all gone and, and they don't, there's no safety car it's literally they slow you down in that little period and then you're free to go again um, and it, it, it's old school racing and that's what's so magic about it you, you were saying earlier about having the sort of safety vehicle behind but I mean the safety vehicles there are big blinking trucks aren't they you, no. which are going around at the same time as you look I, I mean you can pass a breakdown recovery truck uh, and then there's an interve intervention vehicles, which are generally just a, 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 some sort of estate car with a yellow light on the top. Uh, and they're, they're there to sort of help if you need it to, to help and also to let people know that, you know, as you're coming up on that sort of area that there's something going on. But the, the biggest thing is because it's such a big circuit, there's thousands of marshals involved. And like a modern race, Le Mans, the race director sees everything. Where that track, because it's so big, it's, it's like how it, I presume it's always used to be where the marshals are self-sufficient to a point so they've got to assess what's going on then make a decision on what the right procedure should be and because of the slow zone areas and stuff they've got to make it happen so you know it, it's not always clear what's going on um, and then the amount of cars you know I think the one time I did it there was over like 210 cars in the race so there's a lot of cars to get through the level of the cars is huge. The level of drivers, the difference in drivers is huge as well. So yeah, there's weird stuff that goes on that you wouldn't experience at Le Mans. Now, we're going to come to readers' questions um, any second now. So do, do you have a think about what you'd like to ask? Um, I thought it'd be quite nice just to bring it up today. I'm, I'm wary of opening a, a can of worms um, with just a few minutes left. But uh, can you just kind of tell us a bit about what happened at, at Le Mans this year? Because you put it on pole, and then you were saddled. There's obviously there's balanced performance in GT racing, so all cars are kind of leveled out. Yeah. Um, and then in the race, you just drop back because you were saddled with so much weight. Is that about right? Sort of. Yeah. It's close. That's the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of. So, so <laughs> the, the, in uh, the WEC's, uh, WEC championship, there's a, the, the BOP. And you have to have BOP for GT racing. So it's sort of one of those things that everyone hates, but it's like, if we didn't have it, the racing wouldn't be as good. Budgets would be through the roof. And uh, this keeps 
it gives more manufacturers the chance to be involved with GT racing. If there was no BOP, you wouldn't have a BMW on the grid. You know, the car wouldn't fit within that sort of uh, the performance window uh, as it has done for the last season. So you've got to have, have that mechanism in there. For many years, the BOP's been a little bit who shouts the loudest. So what they've done is come up with a mechanism for all the WEC races where it's an auto BOP. So they take certain laps, certain drivers, and they work it all out what the difference in the cars was, and there'd be minor adjustments from race to race. And it could be two kilos, or it could be a very small difference in horsepower, maybe four or five horsepower. So that's the thing. As the season goes on, the performance between the cars gets closer and closer because the auto bot brings it there. So the hardest thing is when a new car comes into the championship because they don't know where to pitch it to start with, and it takes a few, la few races for them to understand where its performance window is, and then that's what, what happens, you know. So any new car coming in, if they pitch it too high in its bot performance, it's like, well, it's coming and it's one straight away, which wouldn't be a good starting point. So generally, the cars start off now a bit below. Le Mans, because it's completely different from all the other circuits, it has a standalone bop um, uh, figures, etc. So this year, it looked quite close. Everyone's fairly close on lap time performance in the Wednesday and Thursday night. Marco goes out and he goes out early on the Thursday, he pops a time in, no traffic, no yellow flags, and it's a good time. He did a good lap, used the tyres well. I think he had a bit of a toe on a couple of straights. So you think, that's brilliant. That's been, you know, it's a great lap. And then other cars go out to try and, and beat it. So we're waiting two hours, thinking the inev inevitable that we're not going to be on pole because other people are now going out on new tyres. But every time people were going out, they'd get a yellow flag or they'd get traffic. But you can see from the sector times that the performance is there from nearly every manufacturer. Um, and quite often, if you put together a rolling lap, so maybe not line to line, but you know, from Tet Rouge to Tet Rouge, people had done quicker laps, up to half a second quicker than what Marco had done. So I think he ended up on pole by a tenth or something. And you think that's still fairly close, and it is close because people were able to go quicker. So can't can't imagine there's going to be any change to the the bop during Friday, and there was. And effectively, if you look at what that performance gap change was, it's just over a second in performance to our detriment. Um, I think they just changed what boost we had effectively. Um, so. We were already on the back foot. I mean, Nicky did a good job at the beginning of the race to try and hold everyone up, but you could tell once everyone got up to speed and were, you know, into the race, because there's no point trying to be a hero on lap one because you're not going to win Le Mans on lap one. So you could tell once the other guys were getting up to speed and comfortable with their cars, they, they came past, and, and obviously the 95 and 97 were sort of going backwards at this point. And, yeah, effectively we were going backwards each stint because of what happened with the bop change on the Friday. So that, it completely had our race over um, and it was, it was done on Friday basically you know, and we're trying to make the most of it and you don't want to give up, you, you get the bot change but you still feel like oh, there's a chance we can, we can still do this but it was evident after one hour that that wasn't going to be the case and then unfortunately Alex had a, a moment <coughs> with a passing LMP1 car in the Porsche curves, uh, it must have been around midnight, I was a, when that um, first happened I'd only just left the moat home because I was about to get in, in 95 um, so he had a moment, he was able to get the car back, so they're repairing the car in, in the garage. And then all eyes went on the TV because Marco had gone in the wall and he had a technical failure basically, um, under braking, and um, it, was a, it was a big accident. So that car was out on the spot, 
they got 97 running again and, and that went to the flag, but obviously quite a lot of laps down at that point. So the, the, the disaster started on, on Friday with a bop change. But, um, <clears throat> you know, 90, uh, 2017 was an amazing year for Aston Martin at Le Mans. New car, 2018, <clears throat> it was exactly what you'd expect. First, his second race with a car, straight into a 24-hour race. We didn't have uh, outright performance, but to get any car to the flag in a 24-hour race in only its second race is a big achievement. To get both of them there without any issues. And because we didn't have the performance, the, the technical boss was like, drive the car as hard as you can. Hit everything you can hit on curbs and stuff like that, because we're not going to... Oh, it was like freedom, <laughs> absolute freedom, because we're not going to win it on pace. So we should use this as a learning experience for coming back in 19. And, you know, we did have the performance, but it was taken away. Yeah. Right, we've got uh, Laura here, who's got a roving mic. Um, so if you've got a question... Thanks, Laura. Um, please just put your hand up. There's obviously, I'm wary that there's, uh, oh, Laura, there's one uh, to the, the front here. I'm very wary that obviously we've, we've only scratched the surface, so um, feel free to, to dive in. Hi, Darren. Hi. Um, I'm amazed at Le Mans, the, the speed you guys do, and I can't comprehend how you get your, your car in the right position, bearing in mind there's all other cars around you. How, how far ahead do you have to think? Because you've got to get the car right to get the next corner or whatever. How, how do, I don't know if I'm asking the right, the right question. But. Driving's a bit like dot to dot. So you build up your reference points around the circuit where, so you know, and they, they adjust to do with tyre, wear and fuel load. So that's the thing that is adjusting, but we're not talking huge amount with maybe 10 metres or something like that. So you start to build up a picture of the circuit and it can be a bump, it could be a marker on the wall, it could be a line uh, surface change or something. There's a million things around the circuit that you can use for reference points and that's how you build up the picture around the track and get the consistency. So it's a lot of feel, experience, using the, the sort of uh, elements around the track as reference points to sort of build up that, that sort of rhythm for driving the track. And then you just make the adjustment for new tyres or old tyres and full fuel, low fuel, etc. So that's what's going on with just driving the track. But then there's lots of variables that are happening every lap with people overtaking you, you overtaking bits of other people. So you might not be in your, the right spot on the track, so you've got to take into account, is the grip level the same here? Is there bumps over here that I, I don't know about? Um, is the overlap going to be okay and all that stuff? The hardest thing and traffic management is one of the most exciting things about sports car racing because you've got four classes and we're all doing our own race, but um, there's still the big race that's going on, which is all of us. And traffic management is, is key to being good at sports car racing. And some drivers come across to it from like single seaters and they hate it. Uh, they hate other classes um, because it ruins the purity of their race. I love it. I think that's part of the skill set required to go sports car racing is to be able to to focus, to manage on, on what different cars are doing, to sort of use the body language of the car to work out what type of driver it is, what they're trying to tell you as well, if they're defensive, if they're gonna let you go and stuff like that. And it's one of the skills is like looking in the mirror, trying to work out what that car is and then predicting where that car's gonna overtake you, especially with the LMP cars. So you can start to build up a plan. Uh, maybe it's know, a kilometer down the road that that's gonna happen, but you've already started to think about it and what you're going to do when that happens sort of thing. So, yeah, that's part of the, the fun of it and the skill set. You don't get it right all the time. And, you know, you'll see times when slower cars are being overtaken, 
And the most efficient way to do it is not to fight at the corner. If you're, especially when you're being overtaken by a car in a different class, is to just come out of the throttle for a second on the straight, let the car overtake, because then you'll both do the corner quicker. But if you try and outbreak each other, fight for the apex and all that stuff, you'll lose two seconds. And the risk factor goes through the roof. So sometimes it's better to concede some time down the straight to make sure that you just make the most of the overall lap time. Um, so it's a sort of a high-speed game of chess that's going on, but yeah, it's fun. Thank you very much. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, any more questions? Yeah. We've got a few now. Great. Um, can, can I ask you, of all the cars you've driven, right back to the single-seaters, which is the one you've most disliked? Oh. Uh, uh, that's really, I've never heard that question. Um, uh, Christ, this is hard, isn't it? Because <laughs> the thing is, even the ones that are crap, they're still fun because you've got to learn how to, to drive it. My, the first car I had was a Formula First that I ran myself, which in principle should be rubbish. It's an old XR2 transverse engine and stuff like that. And it used to oversteer like a, I don't know, like a bus or something like that. But it was, it was horrendous but fantastic for all of those reasons. And that, that was, yeah, it was a difficult car. Did you race that? Did you? I did, yeah, badly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I drove one. Race is not. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, right. yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. But other than that, I mean, there's been cars that have been bad because the setup wasn't right on the day or the tyres weren't right. But I can't say there's been anything that has been particularly horrible. You know, race cars, are, they're all good. Even the bad ones are good, because it's still, you're racing. But. Excellent. So there are another couple that I saw, so there's one here, and then we'll work our way back. Yeah. Hi, Darren. Um, sportsmen in most fears of sport get coached, even when they're at the top of their game. So do you top racing drivers get coached? It, it's happening a lot at the entry level now. You know, that's the norm, where... You know, when I started, I did the Jim Russell Racing School at Donington, and then you had some coaching there, and then that was it. You know, you basically learned the heel and toe, you learned what an apex was, and oversteer, understeer, and away you go. Thanks very much. You've, played, you've done your week's course, and, and that was it. But now in the lower formulas, it's, it's very common for driver coaches. There's a big market there. A lot of older drivers are, are earning reasonable um, sort of uh, wages because they're coaching younger drivers. But we tend to do it at the high level. It's, it's more self-taught in terms of, especially in sports car racing, you've got teammates to work off. So, you know, we go to Le Mans, there's six drivers that are all doing things slightly different. You've got the data, you've got the video. So if you're not happy with what, where your performance is, you've got all these tools to go and help yourself to improve it. And you've got the experience to be able to look at it and say, okay, that's what I need to do for that. So it's, it doesn't seem to be um, common in the in the top level. In fact, I don't really know anyone who sort of walks around with a driver coach, but certainly in the lower formulas, it, it's, it's fairly common. But, you know, with all these tools that you can analyse your performance with, it, it makes it easier. So that's maybe why there's not so many coaches in the top. Excellent. I think there's a couple of rows back. Um, there's a gentleman there. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks Hi, Darren. Top job. You had mentioned that um, one weekend was the 24 hours of Le Mans, the next weekend was the Nürburgring 24 hours. So that takes quite a fit person to do that, I'd imagine. What would be your uh, fitness regime? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I could make something up, <laughs> like I, I, every day I'm in the gym, uh, but I'm, I'm very driver fit because I'm pretty much driving all the time. Um, and then I'd, I try to find something as a target, like the marathon or Land's End, John O'Groach, something that means I've got to train, I've got to do stuff. And randomly, we, we get a health check uh, or fitness check from the team beginning of the season and generally at, at Le Mans. And it's, I've either got a very, somehow, I'm either able to trick those numbers or I'm just fairly naturally fit. So most of the drivers uh, are got some sort of training program, but generally I don't. It's, it's, you know, like the next day, I was saying earlier, the next day I'm actually not doing something at a racetrack is the 6th of August. So then it's like to try and um, fit in a, a fitness program on that one day, you know, it's just a day I want off. You know, I want to go home, see the family, have some time, just do nothing sort of thing, because the rest of the time, you know, I'm uh, in the sim yesterday, in the sim uh, today, back there tomorrow, Thursday fly to Spa, Spa, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then to Barcelona, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, then Silverstone Classic, then straight to uh, Japan for, so, you know, to try and fit something in. You could, but, you know, it would be a token gesture. So uh, I think because of all the, the sort of traveling around, all the driving I'm doing, I don't ever find I'm, I'm out of energy in the car. And I know from, you know, we run heart rate monitors. I know I'm fairly low on that. It either means I'm lazy behind the wheel or I'm just quite relaxed. So I'm not really over 140 uh, on the old heart rate there, so in the car. So the biggest thing for me is, as, is the driver change. That's when my, I get my peak heart rate is the, <laughs> is the driver change because you've got an explosion of energy to get in and out and you don't want to screw it up. So there's all this nervous energy as well. And then, yeah, then the old heart rate drops back. And then in the car, unless, it's, unless you're having a big scare or something, then it's, it sits at 130, 140. So. Thank you. Excellent. There was another question. There's actually one right behind you. And then we'll come over to, sorry, this side of the room. Hello, Darren. Hi. I see the Valkyrie at its inaugural run at um, Silverstone at the weekend. Can you see yourself driving it? Yeah, I'll be part of of some of that development program with the car. So Chris Goodwin's like the lead engineer, lead test driver on that car. Um, so most of it would be done by Chris. Um, but there's always a, a period when you've got to do high sort of speed durability testing. Um, so I was involved with that with the Vulcan, um, a little bit with the DB4 GT continuation as well. So you'll head off down to south of uh, Italy and use one of the proving grounds around there and they just want to fill it up with fuel, send it, and just keep going round and round and round and round and put the miles on the car and the kilometres on the car. So at that point, I would get, get a chance to be involved with that programme. So, um, yeah, I've been to the workshop in the last couple of weeks to see the build before it went to Silverstone. And it's an incredible, incredible car. I mean, it, it looks amazing. Obviously, we, everyone saw it on the, the footage and the photos that have been sort of from, from Silverstone. But when you get up close to see the detail, then you can really appreciate what that car truly is and what it would be in history as, as time goes on. It's, it's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. You know, I spent a good hour just looking around and looking at the detail bits and um, the materials and just, it, I can't really put into words just how incredible the car is. So uh, it'd be great to, to finally get behind the wheel, but that might be in the next sort of uh, couple of months or so. Well, I'm hoping it's in the next couple of months. Excellent. Um, sorry, there are you any more questions? Yeah. Oh, we got one in the back. Absolutely no pressure. 
Right, because I'm the host, I'm having two, actually. <laughs> um, I'm going to start off. What's your fastest teammate? Uh, oh. Uh, it's probably Simon Aaron when we did the Brooklyn's Casting Challenge. It must have Unlike, been, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's been, there's, there's, everyone has their day, and there's everyone, like, super fast. Um, I'm trying to, you know, currently, like, Nicky is, is super fast in the team. He's able to get some great lap times out of the car. Garcia, Antonio Garcia, he was, he was pretty damn special in the, in the GT1 car. Um, and Stefan? Ste Stefan... So I have a very good friendship with Stefan Mucker, and we spent a lot of time together. He's the clumsiest driver I, I know out of the car, one of the nicest drivers I know as well out of the car. Um, and he, you know, we, we were pretty similar in terms of where our strengths were. Um, and so, yeah, we, if, yeah, again, he's fast, and he, another fast driver. More recently, Daniel Serra. Um, from Brazil, uh, he was—he's just one of these guys that you could just put in any race car, and he would find the limit and be, be super fast. Um, so, yeah, and, and then there's you know, like people like Johnny Adam, you know, just does an incredible job at every race. Just put him in, and away he goes. So, I've never had anyone that I wouldn't want to share a car with again. Only one um, where I wouldn't want to Thomas share. Inger. No, but Thomas, you know, he's. He's definitely all or nothing, you know, and it, it will be a big crash or it'll be a massively fast lap time. Um, and that's great to watch, less fun when it's your car. So, uh, I mean, but he, you know, he's again a great teammate, had a lot of fun with him. So, it, there's only, yeah, there's not anyone that really comes to mind that I didn't enjoy something from. I know it's quite politically correct, isn't it? I'm not. I could make something up and say I hated him and he was rubbish or something like that. Or, but there's no one again that I've ever seen that I've gone, I can't do that. But they've done a massively good job to do, to do what they've just done. So um, I think that's the thing. When you get to a professional level, everyone has good days, everyone has you know, slightly off days, but generally everyone can, to, can perform at the same level. Okay, good answer. Um, second one is, we know you're a car guy and uh, you've had Aston's in the past. Uh, we've had a walk around the showroom and workshops tonight. Which car would you like to take home? That's on the site tonight. It's the 177. Um, but I've got the key already. I don't know if you knew that, but I've already had... <laughs> do, you know secret... how, do you know how to start it, though? Of course, secret squirrel. I've had that away, so, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the one... I've, luckily, I've driven one once before. Uh, and I've always just thought the design is just a really beautiful, beautiful design. So, are you saying I can take it? I've, done I've got it. to go I back. How he phrased the question, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> I've got a long drive tonight. So, yeah, I don't know if you're worried about the mileage. <laughs> no. <Okay>, right. <laughs> Excellent. Have we got any more questions from the floor? Yeah, one, one up here. I don't. Know. There's two, two questions. What watch are you after next then? It's got to be a Rolex, what's that one? And the second thing is, as a marathon runner, how do you train and what's your time for London? Uh, so the watch thing is, obviously, we're, we're aligned with Tag Heuer, so I'll be looking for one of those next. <laughs> and the, and the, um, the Rolex, obviously, from last year was, was a huge treat to get driver of the, of the weekend at, at the Revival, so I wasn't expecting that. And the, the funny thing was, obviously, you sent me a text saying, don't leave, 
Because I didn't even know there was a prize given at the end of the... I, I also had to just double-check that you hadn't made contact with anyone over the weekend. <laughs> just, before, just before drive of the weekend, he actually crashed into five people. Yeah. <laughs> but it was... I, I literally thought... One, one thing about the revival was... And, and it's, it's the bit I really wanted to do to, to, to be in a position to be a podium was to get the cigar. That was the only thing I've ever wanted from the revival weekend was to get the cigar. So that was the first thing. And I thought that was the only presentation. At the end of the race, you get your scar and your, your laurel and off you go. So I didn't know there was a prize given at the end of the weekend. So then you sort of said, don't rush off, there's a prize given. So I'm sat, uh, stood with Nick Padmore, and he goes, this is really good. And the, the fastest, the guy that does the fastest lap at the weekend gets a Rolex. Oh, that's amazing, that's my friend Karun. So I rang Karun while I stood there waiting for the prize given. Dude, you're gonna get a watch. And he goes, oh, am I? And he goes, yeah, the fastest guy of the weekend gets a watch. He goes, oh, well, I've all, I'm on the M25. Oh, well, all right, but there's a guy there, he can collect you for it. Great, all right. Then obviously, 20 minutes later, I go up and get a watch. Karoon, you didn't get the watch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so that was like a huge, huge um, surprise, and, you know, something I'll treasure for forever, that will be. So, and then the marathon running, a bit like any training, I normally do like 10, 12 runs beforehand and then rock up. And so that, that was it. But I always die running. It's slow, <coughs> feet go to blisters. I get halfway, I get to Tower Bridge, and I'm like, I wish I did some training. This would be a lot easier. So, and last year was particularly hot. So um, it wasn't the most enjoyable experience, but um, at least it gets me out and I try to put some miles under my feet. So what time? Uh, 4.30 last year. So uh, yeah, it wasn't particularly good, but I did, share, I did it with my wife for the first time. And, uh, uh, so her first go was in the, like, the hottest marathon out there and uh, yeah, she got to the line. And then the nice thing was, as she came across the line, all emotional crying and everything else, I'm never doing that again. And I was like, oh, I'll see what you say tomorrow. I didn't say that to her, but I was like, I'll bet you next day, oh, I really want to do that again. <laughs> so uh, so I, I think we're both going to enter again at some point. So. Uh, this, this time I was all right, I was fine. Cause I, because of, you know, you start in different periods, don't you? So she was starting in a slow group, so she's always going to be behind me, and she ran a bit slower, so I had a good hour at the finish line, and so that was nice. And the sights you see of people coming across the, the line, it was great from, you know, people in great enjoyment, but to people that are throwing up and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I, it was great, I sat there for an hour, and legs relaxed, and this is all good, and then, you know, wife finally came across the line, so... Excellent. Have we got any more questions? We'll probably take one more question if anyone's got one. If not, no, we're all good. Um, well, look, Darren, it's been an absolute pleasure. Wonderful Thank stories. You. Thank you so much uh, for much. joining us. Um, it's, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you also, Simon, um, very, very kind. Your intimate knowledge ever amazes me. Um, thank you, Nicholas Mee, for hosting this wonderful event um, and for our event partners as well, Classic and Sports Finance. Uh, and thank you to you guys, um, the guys and girls, who all turned up and um, have joined us for tonight. I hope you had a good night. Um, we'll all be around for a bit, chatting away. Uh, so thank you all. It's been great. Cheers, Darren. Thank you. Thank you.